Hello everyone, welcome to this installment of Art Dirt, where we talk about topical art topics. I am Christina Reese. I'm Rainy Knudsen. And today is special because we have a guest. Yay, we've got Pete Gershon here. He, Pete is a Houston author who joined us in the Glass Tower Studios to talk about his new book. I'm so excited. I'm actually, I love this book so much. We've had it now for about two weeks and I'm not from Houston. I've never lived in Houston. It doesn't matter. It's an exciting book. I mean, and it makes, it makes Houston look kind of amazing. I have to say. (laughs) Well, it didn't, it was, it was either Esquire or GQ just named us the coolest city in the American South. Well, and I said this in a top five when we put this on a top five, his book, that I'm jealous because I want somebody to do this in Dallas. And the closest we've come, actually, was Lee Arnold did about three years of research on the show for the DMA. And there was a, a, you know, a publication to go with it, but she had to cover 50-something years. And it's just, she couldn't do, you know, a really tight focus on 13 years of Dallas. But, um, man, it's inspiring. Absolutely. Support for this episode of Art Dirt comes from the Meadows Museum at SMU in Dallas, currently presenting Dali, Poetics of the Small, 1929 through 1936. This is the first exhibit to focus on the small format works of the painter Salvador Dali. It's on view through December 9th at SMU in Dallas. And on Thursday, October the 4th, there will be a lecture by Roger Rothman titled Salvador Dali's Surrealism of the Tiny. We've seen this exhibition. It's great looking. Don't miss it. For more information, go to meadowsmuseumdallas.org. Our very special guest today is Pete Gershon, who has just come out with a book, Collision, the Contemporary Art Scene in Houston, 1972 to 1985. Pete, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. It's great to have you on the podcast on Art Dirt. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, Thank you both for showing the book some love lately. We've been doing, we've been really all over this book for the last couple of weeks, and I'm still really enjoying it. Um, I kind of just dip into it. I don't even necessarily do it chronologically i almost do it by whichever photo is most mesmerizing to me at the moment well that's kind of the way i thought a lot of people would approach the book actually mm-hmm. my first big question for pete is one that i talked to some houston artists when this book came out and i was like what would you ask him and a couple of them were like what made you do this <laughs> uh well uh i was uh, when i moved here to houston in 2005 i was publishing this jazz mag- magazine that i started in uh, vermont in 1997 and uh, I did that for about 15 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a paper and ink magazine about uh, avant-garde experimental music. And uh, so it was obviously the kind of thing I wasn't going to be able to, uh, wasn't going to be sustainable forever, especially in this climate. A lot of bookstores closing and uh, a lot of small labels uh, going out of business. Uh, things got, got pretty rough. And, and anyway, I was really interested in approaching something else and finding something else to write about other than music. Uh, and uh, when I moved to Houston, I found out about all these places like the Orange Show and the Beer Can House uh, and the Flower Man over in the Third Ward. And I, I got real curious. Uh, and I went looking for a book that was going to tell me about the, the history of these places and the, the biographies of the people who made them. And uh, I found that no such book really existed, so uh, I decided I was going to write about these places, and I did the research, 
And uh, in the course of, of that, I met people like uh, Marilyn Oshman and uh, Jim Harithis and John Alexander. Uh, you know, the whole art community knew about The Orange Show back in the 70s uh, when it was still being built. Uh, and they'd bring visiting artists and girlfriends and board members over there. Uh, and in talking to these people, uh, I found that they, they had so many stories about what was happening here in Houston in the, in the 70s. Uh, really outrageous stories, in fact. So I was very intrigued, and I thought this could be a good subject matter for a follow-up book. Uh, meanwhile, I had been doing some volunteer work over at the Manil Collection. Uh, it was kind of weird how that started. Uh, one of my fellow K-True DJs uh, learned that I had been digitizing a collection of rare jazz cassette recordings that I had. And she said, uh, well, you know, Pete, if you know how to do that, you should, uh, you could help out in the, the archives at the Manil. And I thought this was just outlandish, like they were just going to let me walk in off the street and get my hands on their archives. But she made an introduction for me, and uh, I spent about a year and a half digitizing all of their VHS tapes and all of their cassette tapes, uh, which was a real uh, art history education in and of itself. <laughs> And uh, I met this woman there, Patricia Hernandez, who was getting a program off the ground at Diver Diverse Works called The Call Project. And the idea behind The Call Project stands for uh, conserving a, a living legacy. And they were matching younger arts professionals with older regional artists, helping them to uh, document their, their artwork and organize their papers, uh, not really to archive, but just so they'd be better uh, prepared to take advantage of opportunities to show their work. And she put me together with uh, an artist a lot of your listeners probably know, Bert Long, uh, who I didn't know at the time, but I got to know him real well. I uh, went over to his house two, three times a week for about a year and a half. And uh, Bert saved everything, Never threw anything away, uh, uh, found a way to work himself into almost every show that happened during that time. Uh, and uh, so his archive was uh, really an archive of the whole Houston art scene. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking with Bert. He was a great storyteller. And when he passed away early in 2013, I, it, it really made me realize how much this information was at risk. Uh, so I decided then I was going to accelerate my efforts. I was really going to go out there, interview absolutely everyone I could, and look at all this documentation and uh, get this really get this book going. So that, that was the start of the project. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the time frame. I know you've been asked about this, but it's 72 to 85. What, what are the bookends there? Uh, well, it's real specific. Uh, I should say that uh, to give the background, I do go all the way back to the beginnings of Houston in 1836 and looking uh, at how the art scene, there really was an art scene, believe it or not, in 1836. <laughs> there were painters here living in Houston, uh, and you really can trace the development up through the, the decades uh, into the modern era. Uh, you know, a lot of the artists who have worked here have also been teachers, so this knowledge has just been passed from generation to generation uh, in a very direct and immediate way. Uh, but uh, the modern era, I, I really feel, started in uh, 1972 with the opening of the uh, modern-day Contemporary Arts Museum building on the corner of Montrose and Bissonnette, uh, which I'm sure all of your readers know, uh, this very modern building, uh, ahead of its time, really. And uh, the first show that they had there was organized by the, the director at the time, this guy Sebastian Lefty Adler, uh, kind of... Uh, 
you know, you might even say he was sort of the P.T. Barnum of uh, museum directors <laughs> at the time. And he, he well, organized... Well, there the, were animals in that first show. Uh, you're right, you are. <laughs> well, this, this show that he, he did, it was called Exhibition 10. And uh, he went out and found these 10 super cutting-edge artists uh, who are making this site-specific work uh, developed specifically for this show, but uh, none of it really looked like art to uh, anybody in the, the Houston art community. Actually, I shouldn't really say that. I think the artists were really behind it. Uh, but the lay people here in Houston, uh, you know, for example, there was this uh, uh, trench that the, they dug uh, in what's now the Cullen Sculpture Garden. It was a piece by an artist named Vera Simons called Wave Transplant. And she designed this machine that was going to push this wave back and forth through this trench. Uh, didn't really work. Uh, there was a, a programmed uh, light show on the side of the Goodyear Blimp by an artist named Michael Snow. That didn't really work. Uh, the, the piece in the show that made everybody so mad uh, was called New York City Animal Levels uh, by a, an artist from California named Ellen Van Fleet. And uh, this was uh, stacks of cages with uh, pigeons and, and uh, cats and rats and uh, cockroaches. Uh, and uh, it smelled really terrible. Uh, during the opening, a lot of the animals escaped into the crowd. It caused a lot of consternation. Uh, and, uh, you know, the people who gave the money for this new building were, were really very upset. Uh, they felt like they had been, they had been duped. And um, the... Uh, the Lefty Adler was uh, edged out of his directorship just a few months after that. Uh, but I feel like it was a real demarcation point for contemporary art here in Houston. I loved reading about all that mm-hmm. in the book when I was, you know, reading that section of it and the photographs that you have. I, I am aware, like, there's a video that Ant Farm, the artist collective Ant Farm, who did Cadillac Ranch, amongst many other projects, yeah. they shot at the opening. I'm sure you looked at footage, like that kind of footage, and all kinds of archival materials researching these stories. Yeah, indeed I did. Uh, I was actually in a real fortunate position when I, when I really delved into this research. Uh, I was just getting going with a, a master's degree at University of North Texas uh, in library science. Uh, and I was doing it by, by distance ed, and uh, I kind of did my, my practicum rather at the end of the program. I did it at the beginning of my time in the program, and uh, I worked for a summer in the uh, archives of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, which uh, at the time was the repository that had control over the CAMS archives. Uh, so I had really close access to all this material. Uh, I stayed way beyond the hours that I was supposed to be working, and I looked at absolutely everything that I could. Uh, but I also tried to accumulate a lot of firsthand research. I mean, I called Ellen Van Fleet on the phone. I contacted every single one of these artists uh, that I could find from that, that uh, first show. I talked to members of the Ant Farm. Uh, I talked to people in the Houston community who were there. Uh, and uh, really, in this research, I tried to leave uh, no stone unturned, uh, not only because I wanted to be very complete and thorough with the research, but uh, just because it was so much fun. And I began to find that I was really the first person who had asked a lot of these artists these questions. Um, mm-hmm. It was wonderful looking at the photographs from that opening night in the book and remembering, or not not remembering, because that was the year I was born, but knowing that there was a time when people would go to the opening of an art exhibition in ball gowns and tuxedos. Yeah. <laughs> these and people, then, look, and these then, people look sharp. They look sharp in those 70s big hairdos and stuff. Um, it's The book seems really, really exhaustively researched, and you've spoken to uh, mm-hmm. clearly 
dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people in putting it all together. I love the way you let the people's stories lead sort of the narrative. Yeah. Um, what were some of the mm-hmm. most interesting stories, you know, what were your, some of your favorite stories that emerged in, in working on this? Because it, it is chock-a-block. And I, there's real dirt in the book, which I love. People mm-hmm. were not afraid to dish. Well, you talked to a lot of artists, and they weren't yeah, afraid to no, dish. Yeah, no, people, uh, I think people really trusted me with their stories, and uh, people love to tell these stories. And uh, uh, obviously, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but coming from the point of a journalist, uh, you want the, the most lively stories, I guess I would say. Uh, and, and people people certainly had them. I mean, this is an era where, you know, there were floods and fires and fist fights. Uh, and I guess the most outlandish story in the book uh, is uh, one that, that people can find online. It was excerpted uh, recently in Arts and Culture, Texas. And uh, this is the story surrounding an opening of a, a show at the CAM in 1977 by a Spanish conceptual artist named Anthony Miralda, uh, who Jim Harith has brought here for a show. And uh, the, uh, th- this is an artist who works a lot with food, uh, and uh, he prepared a, a display of uh, a really a wall made out of loaves of colored bread. And uh, for the opening of the show, uh, they enlisted the Kilgore Rangerettes to come and, and do a performance. And uh, uh, after they did their kind of their stock routines, uh, they marched up from the lower level of the cam uh, with trays of bread, and they actually built this wall that bisected the gallery. And, uh, you know, people were, were getting drunk. The air conditioning broke. It was getting hot in there. Uh, people began tearing off little chunks of bread and playfully tossing them around. Uh, and then this one guy who everybody remembers as kind of this uh, a real character, sort of a troublemaker from St. Thomas, uh, threw a loaf of bread across the room and knocked over this little girl. And uh, one of the artists present saw this happen, uh, grabbed the guy by the collar, dragged him out back to deal with him. Uh, the whole was, that, was, that, was that artist John Alexander? Uh, in fact, in fact, it was John Alexander. Uh-huh. The, the, the artist was John Alexander. And Why am I not surprised? <laughs> well, uh, you know, this the whole room, it just uh, devolved into this uh, uh, utter chaos. Uh, and uh, the police came. Uh, everybody scattered. Uh, it was at the time kind of an embarrassment for the museum. Right now, everybody acknowledges it as a great story, but... Uh, uh, it, it was really uh, one of the points where the, the um, museum's board really began to wonder whether whether uh, they should keep Jim on as, as director, even though he had uh, uh, done some really incredible cutting-edge work. And, and I just want to say uh, J- Jim is really the hero of this book. Uh, I think he changed everything here in Houston. Uh, he came here as a, a professional museum person and uh, recognized the depth and the breadth of talent that we had here in Texas and Houston specifically. And he was the first person who really uh, contended seriously that uh, art by Houston artists was just as good as anything happening anywhere else in the country. Well, let's talk about Herathus a little bit more because he's obviously an incredibly colorful character and, yes, central in the in the book. Um, what do you think we're – I mean, aside from acknowledging Houston artists, and I think you make that point really nicely in the book – um, what are some of the other things that he did? Uh, or I mean, he's famous for, you know, getting fired after the flood, essentially. Uh, what was the last straw for him? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, around the same time that the uh, Meralda show was happening, uh, the, he, he was working with some museum staffers to put together uh, an arts magazine called Points of View uh, that was going to include uh, various things, essays, a photo essay by a photographer, Suzanne Paul. Uh, but the sticking point for, for the museum's board was that they were going to publish uh, Charles Manson's prison writings. Uh, and uh, I think for Jim, uh, it was uh, a matter of uh, really digging into a, a, an authentic uh, cultural experience born out of kind of the madness of the late 60s and, and into the 70s. But uh, the museum's board just did not want anything to do with Charles Manson. They were really, really mad. Uh, so I think this was kind of a breaking point for a lot of them. Uh, and although they didn't fire him at that point, they started talking about bringing in a business manager that was going to share power with the, with the director of the museum. And uh, this was just not cool with Jim at all. He was not going to stand for it. Uh, he wrote a letter that, uh, when you read it, it's clearly a letter of resignation. Uh, I think uh, he was sort of looking at it as something that was going to uh, provoke the board and get them to reconsider hiring the business manager. Uh, but they, uh, they accepted this, this resignation, resignation letter, and, um, and, and he, was, he was out by uh, the, the uh, later part of 1978. I love the quote about that story where you talked to Paul Schimmel, the curator, of course, who went on very famously to be the curator at MoCA in L.A. And Paul was in Houston and curating at the CAM at the time. And I yep. think he said something like, even even Jim knew this was just ridiculous. Like, he, this was too big of a gesture and nobody was going to go for this. Yeah, he went on to say it was at that point that the board began to confuse Jim with Charles Manson. <laughs> Well, it's funny because Herathus, I mean, and he's still alive, you know, it has this almost larger than life uh, presence in Houston, for, particularly for people who remember his time at the CAM. And he's been doing the Station Museum for, I guess, 10 years now. And, um, and of course, they're super committed to uh, political art, political art, international art, and bringing stuff that wouldn't otherwise get seen here. I love that, that you say he's the hero. There are certainly people in Houston who, who you know, have mixed feelings about Jim Harris, but there is no doubt about it. He's an example of how one person can change a community. He did. He changed everything. And I guess I would also add to that that not only did he uh, do all these shows by these uh, artists from Houston and other places in Texas, but he did bring in some uh, remarkable shows by artists of international stature. Uh, uh, the show of um, a work by John Chamberlain, that if people go out to Marfa and see those uh, uh, sculptures out there, his Texas series that he made at Stanley Marsh's Ranch in Amarillo, uh, those were shown here in Houston first at the CAM. Uh, also, people like uh, Salvatore Scarpita and Norman Bloom, and he didn't just bring them in to do shows. He really embedded these people into the community, uh, helped them get uh, teaching opportunities at U of H in some cases, uh, and uh, they really had a big impact and influence on artists working here in Houston. So uh, uh, because of Jim, uh, the artists here weren't really working in a bubble anymore. So what happened in 1985 that that brings this book to a close. Well, the, the culmination of this era, I feel, was a, a show, a, a rather famous show called Fresh Paint, the Houston School, which was uh, organized by Barbara Rose, who uh, had been a very important art critic, uh, but uh, recast herself as a curator when she came down here to Houston in uh, 1981. And she worked with a local art writer named Susie Khalil uh, to put together this show. I think there were 44 painters in this show. 
Uh, and uh, it was uh, really the first serious attempt by the museum to uh, catalog and give attention to Houston's homegrown artists. Uh, and uh, when you look at the people uh, on the show, it was really this incredible mix of uh, the, the veterans who had been here for decades, people like Dick Ray and Jack Boynton and John Biggers, uh, but also all the, this young talent that was coming up out of the Lawndale Annex. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Kelly Allison and Jeff DeLude and Sharon Capriva, uh, and really just rolled these people together into this incredible survey uh, that was not just an, inc an incredible show, but it was a point of local pride. This was in the, the newspapers, radio, bumper stickers, uh, national glossy jazz magazines, uh, live TV broadcasts from the opening. Uh, I mean, we really haven't seen anything like it since, and a lot of people uh, regard it as being the thing that really kicked off their careers. Uh, you say we haven't mm. seen anything like it since, and that's what's interesting about the, so many of the stories in this book. You know, the fist fight at the cam and the live animals in the cam getting loose oh. and roaches and rats killing kittens and and all these stories. It's it's you, you, at the time it must have been absolutely unbelievable. And if you think about like think about a, a true melee breaking out at a museum today and people throwing punches and like beating each other up and the cops getting called, that would be huge news. That would people that would blow people's minds. And that was happening at the time. And then like this like the Fresh Paint exhibition. You're right. There hasn't been anything at that level um, in Houston. I don't think since. Well, we were really on the frontier mm. then, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, you think about something like the Lawndale Annex, okay? Uh, for people who don't know, this is a, a huge uh, warehouse out in the East End where uh, when the uh, art building at the Univers University of Houston burned down in late 1978, they had to move the art department somewhere. And so they kind of uh, stuck these uh, sculptors and painters in this, this uh, almost uh, abandoned warehouse. Uh, but uh, for them, it was perfect. You know, it was just this huge empty space where nobody was watching what they were doing and uh, they could do whatever they wanted. And they did uh, build, built out galleries, did incredible shows, made incredible artwork there. Uh, but you think about something like that happening in 2018, and uh, our society is just too litigious now for something like that to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it was almost dangerous. They had these uh, large uh, louvered openings uh, on, in the floor separating the upper level and the lower level, and, uh, you know, people uh, occasionally almost fell through. Uh, there were some accidents there. Uh, you know, uh, it was uh, very exciting, but it was uh, almost uh, on the border of being slightly Slightly dangerous. Uh, and you, well, you, 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 wasn't there a, wasn't there an artist who had, cut her fingers off in the table saw? Like that was sort of the end of Lawndale. Yeah, I've heard this story too. And the, the only reason I didn't include it in the book is because I was never really able to pin down the details. But uh, mm -hmm. a lot of artists re uh, remember that. Uh, and and there, there were a lot of reasons that contributed to the demise of Lawndale. Uh, I guess the final straw was a uh, replacements concert that was in 1985 that was particularly rowdy, uh, and uh, <laughs> the cops came. I mean, I get the cops were always coming to Lawndale, uh, but it was at that point that the the university really began to consider severing its relationship with the with the space. Who who would have booked the replacements at Lawndale? Uh, my understanding is it was uh, an outside promoter. But oh, Black Fag, I mean, other artists, other musicians and punk bands had been brought there in the past. And, and one of the ways they kept it going was they would sell mm -hmm. beer under the table for, they, they would sell tickets 
and then you had a ticket, and then you with the ticket you bought beer, and that's how they kind of funded the thing, which of course was totally illegal. And once the university got wind of that, the university was yeah. not going to have that going on. That's exactly right. And I think it's worth mentioning that Lawndale was really the premier spot for music in Houston at that time. Uh, you had uh, Ornette Coleman playing there, Cecil Taylor, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Uh, Philip Glass came here to uh, perform the music for uh, an avant-garde opera that was presented by Houston Grand Opera. And uh, this was really important for the artists who were studying U of H is uh, they could be working uh, in their studio late at night and they'd take a break and walk down the hallway and there's uh, Sonny Rollins rehearsing for his show. Uh, really kind of incredible if you think about it. It is. I mean, as, if something like that could exist again today. I mean, one of the things that worked about it, it's funny you mentioned the litigious nature of our society. One of the things that worked about it that I've always heard from artists who were involved with Lawndale it was that it was incredibly permissive in a positive way. And and that if artists wanted to do something, the answer was yes. But, you know, the other side of that is that, and this, this was true, you know, it, with the Collision Show, which I'm sure, which I'd love for you to talk about, but the amount of drugs being used and the amongst the patrons, amongst the artists, amongst everybody, I mean, it was absolutely wild in that regard compared to what you would experience today, I think, certainly at a university-sponsored gallery. Yeah, it was a wild. It was a wild place. You know, they had this dip in the in the roof, and uh, they brought a hose up there and they filled it with water. So they made their own swimming pool where they could skinny dip. <laughs> oh God! What was uh What was Chaucer's bar at the Plaza? Yeah, Chaucer's bar. Uh, that's where people like to to fight <laughs> in the seventies, drink and fight. <laughs> it was on the lower level of the Plaza Hotel, which is now uh, I can't don't know the name of the bank, but it's that old bank building that's directly across from the new Glacelle. Uh, and uh, this was a it was a smoky, dingy basement bar. Uh, and uh, this is where all the museum people uh, hung out, and uh, younger artists got to know older artists. It was a real uh, melting pot of uh, creativity, but uh, also of, uh, I guess, uh, bad behavior also. Mm-hmm. It's funny, the famous, uh, the famous Hunter S. Thompson quote that you quote in the book from 2004, where he describes, he's, how does it, what is it he says? He calls it... Uh, uh, I can't I, remember. I wish I had it in front of me. It's long. Um, it's long, but basically what a completely sordid and insane place Houston is. But, of course, by the time 2004 rolled around, when he wrote that, that wasn't true anymore. But it was true in the time period that you're talking about. Like, it was uh, the 70s, to me, is like the last gasp of that being true. Well, Hunter S. Thompson came here in uh, 1972 when Houston hosted the Super Bowl. Uh, and there's an article uh, you can find online uh, on the uh, Rolling Stone website that he wrote when he was in town in 72. Uh, and uh, he was staying at the um, uh, Hyatt uh, downtown. And uh, uh, I think that's when uh, Hunter S. Thompson really began to understand what kind of a place Houston really was. And it's, it's well worth reading if people want to Google it up. It's just, it's funny because if you did a second book, uh covering a period from 85 to now, it seems like it couldn't possibly be as glamorous and decadent. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, I think... Uh, I, Commerce Street Artist Warehouse I mean, I'm decadent. just wondering, I'm asking both of you, actually, like, you know, you guys know Houston in a way that I don't. Well, I think a very good book could be written. Uh, obviously, things didn't stop here in 1985, although no. I would say, uh, you know, uh, not just a fresh paint capping off the era, but also uh, there was a, a serious economic crash 
uh, and there was a lot less money to go around. So I think in some ways the scene was uh, driven underground a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Commerce Street, um, uh, it was the, you had the rise of the core program. Um, there was still a lot going on, and uh, I hope that uh, this book project is really just a starting point for, uh, I mean, I'm going to keep going, but I hope other people are going to get involved and help uh, pick up these threads, too, uh, because there's really more research to be done than one person could ever do by themselves, and other people are already doing it, too. I think the story, and you kind of alluded to this, Pete, the second half of the 80s, early 90s, becomes less about the institutions and more about the grassroots scene, and, and which is really interesting. And nowadays, uh, I, I mean, I would say it's, it is not as institutionally driven at all. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I think we have more institutions than we had before, uh, but we also have a lot more artists. There are more uh, artists uh, working kind of on the fringe out there. Um, you know, it's not history yet. I think that to really properly evaluate what's going on now, we're going to have to wait 20 or 30 years for somebody else to look back and make sense of it all. Who were, I mean, you spoke to so many people, obviously, for the book. Um, who were, were there any stories that you wish you had gotten? Were there any things that you felt like were, were left out or you weren't able to dig into very deeply? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I intentionally didn't go very deep was the uh, very rich history surrounding uh, the the Ills uh, and their patronage, uh, first at uh, St. Thomas, then at Rice University, and then, of course, the Manil Collection itself, which didn't open until 1987, I believe. Uh, I intentionally shied away from that because uh, I, I knew that my colleague, William Middleton, uh, was already working on his book, Double Vision, a very, uh, very well-researched, uh, long uh, book, uh, and uh, I, I just didn't see any need to duplicate what he was doing. Um, and uh, I, I re- think it's actually uh, great that uh, these two books are coming out right around the same time. Uh, I think taken both together, they, they give a, a fairly complete picture of what was happening here in Houston at the time. Yeah, and of course, your book ends before the Manil Collection opens, so you didn't have to get too deeply into that, although obviously they were very active prior to the opening of the building. Yeah, I mean, I think they, uh, you know, obviously uh, changed everything here in Houston. If they had not arrived here in the in the 40s, and uh, uh, their their largesse is really what uh, kept the scene going here for for decades. Uh, so without them, uh, the uh, Houston's art scene would have developed in a, a very different way, and perhaps oh, not yeah. as substantial. So you're a transplant. You're not from Houston originally. I'm a, I'm a Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> You're not from around here. <laughs> yeah. What what as like obviously this is your adopted hometown. I mean what what is your perception of Houston? What is it that you think makes Houston interesting or unique or special or you know worthy of digging into a book like this? Well, I just love it here. Uh, I, I come from uh, Burlington, Vermont. I grew up in upstate New York and then I lived in in Vermont for about 10 years. And uh, I really loved living there, Uh, wonderful uh, music scene and the people and the nature, mountains, lake, uh, just really, really beautiful place to live. Uh, But I I really prefer living in Houston. Uh, I feel like uh, the music's better, the art's better, the food's better, Uh, people are are friendlier. 
And uh, I, I have felt really at home. And, and what's remarkable to me is uh, to be able to come in as an outsider, uh, it was very easy for me to get involved uh, in the art scene here. People are, are very welcoming and uh, open. And uh, I've made so many friends uh, doing this project, uh, just people that, that I'm going to be close with, uh, with a, for the rest of my life. Uh, so I'm just so uh, happy and grateful. I think it's almost key that you came in from the outside, that you were able to get so many people to open up to you. There was a real political advantage to being from somewhere else, I think. Well, I think you're right. Uh, at first, when I began to tackle this project, I a little bit wondered, well, you know, maybe this is somebody else's book to write. Maybe this book should be written by somebody who was actually living here during the time. Uh, but I think coming in as an outsider and somebody of a slightly younger generation, I think it gives me a, a different perspective. And I didn't go into it uh, having any particular political agenda at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just looking at the stories and what the archives told me and what the, the people that I interviewed told me uh, and just trying to make sense of it that way. So tell us about this title of the book, Collision, and the show that it's named after. Yeah, this is a hugely important show. I'll back up a little bit and and tell you that the original uh, title of this book was going to be Pow Wow, and that was going to be uh, a reference to uh, the show that really kicked off Lawndale in the fall of 1979. This is a show that was organized by James Searles and Burt Long, and uh, when they really got Lawndale going, they just wanted to have the biggest, best show with the most artists and the most fun. And uh, they had a, a show of miniature artwork by something like 500 different artists from around Texas and Louisiana. And uh, the party that opened the show was a, a costume ball with belly dancers and magicians and uh, a decorated cake contest with uh, bakers from uh, all the different uh, hotels around Houston. And it was just a big, big deal. And so I was looking at the show and thinking about it as the opportunity when the entire art scene came together here in Houston in, in a real uh, powwow. And then I had colleagues uh, who were like, uh, Pete Gershon, it, it is not cool in 2018 to call your book powwow. You should not <laughs> do it. <laughs> and uh, at first I resisted a little bit, but I, I listened and uh, I, I certainly I saw their point. Uh, and uh, I, I thought about a different show that happened uh, again at Lawndale. This was in uh, the fall of 1984, and this is a show called uh, Collision Independent Visions that was curated by Jim's wife, Ann Harithis. And uh, she brought together a handful of artists who uh, were working in kind of an assemblage technique. Uh, there was only one Houston artist in that show, that's Jesse Lott. Uh, Luis Jimenez was in the show. He's not strictly a Houston artist, although he did spend time here teaching at the university. Uh, probably most notable uh, were these uh, incredible art cars made by a California artist named Larry Fuente. Uh, and even though Jackie Harris had already made a couple of art cars, that's another Lawndale artist, uh, this was a show that uh, really put the art car uh, kind of on the map here in Houston and got people thinking about that. So it was a little bit responsible for the art car movement, I think, possibly a lot responsible. Uh, and uh, it was a really influential show for Houston artists. Uh, it was, uh, the artwork was really uh, uh, gritty and different from what a lot of people had seen before. Uh, and uh, there was a, a huge uh, uh, opening reception with the, the Neville brothers playing and these amazing uh, stilt dancers and these Mardi Gras Indians. 
uh, and uh, it, it was it was a big deal, and uh, many people consider it to be the the most one of the most important shows of the era. And uh, I thought about that word collision, and it just seemed so dynamic to me. And it seemed to me that in a lot of ways, what I went into the project thinking was a big powwow really was more of a collision where you had uh, artists fighting with each other, artists fighting with the uh, administration of uh, various museums and institutions. Uh, there were fights between different factions in the city, uh, diff different ethnic groups. Um, it really seemed to be the word that better characterized what was happening here in Houston's art scene and in the city uh, generally. So uh, that's that's what I went with. Well, one of the conflicts that it comes out in the book and that it like is still exists. I mean, it's still something we grapple with a lot here is this notion of the regional or local art scene versus you know elsewhere. And the various parties that be in factions within institutions, within the artist community, within the dealer community, who, you know, are, are assigned to as ascribing to one side or the other, even though I don't think it's ever black and white. And that came out really strongly. And, you know, some of the, the great story that I really wasn't familiar with where people kind of ganged up on the MFAH. I say great story. I'm sure it was traumatic for people at the time. Um, with the director, William Agee. Can you talk about that story a little bit? Yeah, I think this was a really uh, a painful time in the museum's history. Uh, and it was a different time. And museum directors were tended to be more uh, scholars at that time uh, rather than uh, um, uh, business people who are uh, running. Uh, they're more, uh, in some ways, you have to be more like a CEO these days when you're uh, controlling a large museum, I think, uh, just because of the, the scale and the implications and the money involved. Uh, and uh, it, it all makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and Bill Agee uh, was uh, very well respected. Uh, he came here, he and Jim Harithus arrived uh, at roughly the same time uh, in 1974. Uh, and uh, he uh, did some incredible shows, but I think there was a perception, right, rightly or not, uh, that the museum was a little bit uh, closed off, uh, certainly to local artists. It didn't show a lot of work by locals. Uh, and uh, there was uh, there were a few things that happened. There was a, 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 pr a problem that came up where some uh, paintings were were deaccessioned, de uh, and people in the community felt like uh, there should be a little bit more transparency. Uh, certainly, people who had donated works to the museum, uh, and this is just something that was in the air. It wasn't just Houston. The same thing happened in uh, 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 New York City with uh, the uh, director of the Metropolitan Museum, Thomas Hoving. Uh, it was almost a, a parallel situation. Uh, so uh, It's that funny because it's, it's decades before the most recent round of, you know, problems with deaccessioning with museums. So it's, this is not a new issue. Right, right. That's exactly right. Uh, another problem was there was a lot of skepticism when Barbara Rose came here. Uh, she was a celebrity curator. She was going to keep her apartment in New York. Uh, and uh, she was going to visit Houston uh, for a week each month. Uh, and uh, there was a, a worry in the local community that uh, a, a curator who was not even going to live in Houston was not really going to engage with the local community here in a meaningful way. Now, I think the evidence was uh, she's the 
wound up being the person who organized the most high-profile and in-depth show of Houston artists that the museum has ever had. Uh, but uh, at the time, there was a there was a real worry about this, and it was the uh, Women's Caucus for Art that uh, organized uh, an open letter that was published in the newspapers here, got dozens and dozens of local artists and administrators to sign, uh, and uh, I think it was their uh, pressure that they applied that resulted in the hiring, after William Agee resigned, the hiring of a museum director like Peter Marzio, uh, who was very open to the local community. Uh, he worked with Barbara Rose to institute a program where they would buy a certain number of works by Houston artists each year. It was the start of the, the first serious collection of Houston artists uh, at the museum. And uh, you know, Peter Marzio was the kind of director that really wanted uh, everybody in the in the city to uh, visit and enjoy the collection at the museum. Uh, and I think we still uh, see this kind of openness today uh, with the kind of uh, uh, interactive shows that they present uh, that uh, are a real draw and uh, get people coming to the museum that uh, might not have a lot of experience with those kind of institutions. Uh, so uh, I think that was a, a real point of uh, progress and uh, development that happened during those years. What's interesting about the AG moment, and this is what I thought was such, that was what you handled so well in the book, is there are clearly people with very strong opinions and warring factions and very different takes on various episodes, probably that throughout the book, and I'm sure you heard, got an earful from all kinds of people sort of axing their, grinding their own axe about certain situations. And you, I felt like you did a really nice job of including various points of view. And so there's a nice long quote from Bill Canfield, for example, uh, Canfield, a very re well-respected local art historian, defending William Agee. And so it's not all just uh, people ganging up or one side being represented. You did a nice job kind of spreading it around, I think. Well, uh, you know, it was not my intention to portray anyone as a villain or uh, any institution that way. Uh, I, I really did want to present all sides of the story because I feel like uh, any one person's opinion is as valid as any other's, honestly. Um, I wanted to ask you about working with uh, A&M Press. Yeah. Because uh, they, they were who published this. And we've been sort of paying attention, and we always pay attention to the university presses around here, and I feel like they are really doing some interesting art publishing. Um, yeah, they, they really are. Uh, so the, what, were, were they the first, you don't have to t answer if they were the first question, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, yeah, they were the first, they were the first. Uh, mm. When I was working on this book, uh, I was introduced to uh, a, a gallerist uh, named uh, Bill Reeves, uh, who uh, with uh, his partner Sarah Foltz uh, has this wonderful gallery uh, dealing with uh, Texas artists. Uh, and uh, I, I met him and he introduced me to my editor, Tom Lemons, at a gallery opening. Uh, and uh, I described the project, and Tom was immediately interested. Uh, I sent him some sample chapters that uh, I had, had already written, and uh, they were all in, and uh, they really let me be my authentic self with this. They didn't want a lot of changes. Uh, and uh, even though what I proposed was a very, obviously a very elaborate, very expensive book, uh, they, they supported me uh, through and through, and they've been uh, really wonderful to work with uh, and uh, have put out recently uh, excellent books uh, on the work of Dorothy Hood, uh, Richard Stout, uh, my colleague from San Antonio, uh, Craig Bunch, did this uh, very nice book uh, called The Art of Found Objects. Uh, and there's, uh, there's more to come. So uh, they, they are really seriously going at it uh, and uh, you know, want, want to really uh, be the vanguard publisher for uh, books on Texas art. 
Well, they've they are the Vanguard publisher now. Right, right. The second they are, that's true. Did yeah. you have a grant or, or any sort of funding to support you during this process? Yeah, uh, I did. Uh, I, I did a lot of my own fundraising, and uh, people were very generous. I would acknowledge, in particular, the uh, Anchorage Foundation of Texas, the Elizabeth Firestone Graham Foundation. Uh, I got some money from the City of Houston through the Houston Art Alliance to support the research. Uh, many, many wonderful individuals, uh, Nancy Luton, Brad and Leslie Booker, Marilyn Oshman, Jeff Beecham, uh, Deborah Colton. Uh, I probably shouldn't get too listy with the names because I'll leave people out, but these are the mm. ones who really support it on a high level. And uh, I have to say that uh, patrons here in the Houston community, uh, they really recognize the, the value of this work and they recognize what's at stake. Uh, and they, they really supported this project so that it could be uh, everything I wanted it to be. Was there another city's book that inspired you or that you used as a model? Yeah, there's one I looked at. Uh, it's a, a book called Catalog LA, and I think it was associated with a show. Uh, but it's a, a big, uh, beautiful, colorful book with its own uh, timeline. Uh, it's not really crafted quite in the narrative style that mine is. Uh, but I really like the idea of uh, uh, a, a project that uh, looks locally at one specific place and drills down into one time period. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, w what we're dealing with with my book is uh, really just a period of 12 years, and so much happened during that time, and so much changed. Uh, it's really incredible when you think about it. Did you know that this project was going to take as long as it did? Well, uh, I've also had a lot going on with my life during this time. Uh, I've been uh, raising two kids, a girlfriend, a master's degree, a full-time job, uh, so, uh, even though I worked on this book for about five years, um, you know, I had other things happening with my life, so, uh, I just worked on it, uh, slowly and patiently, uh, and, uh, I think that was to the, the ultimate, uh, benefit to, uh, really take my time and, and not try and rush something out. And of course, you know, even still, I am continuing to understand the story better and better, and already there are little things that, uh, uh, I, I wish I had gone into more detail or I have, you know, found out other little stories that I wish I could have included. And that's just going to keep happening, you know, throughout the rest of my life, I'm sure. But you got to finish. You got to wrap up a book sometime and get it out there. <laughs> you, do, you do. It's true. We, we could all edit forever. What? Uh, so what's next for you? What, what's your next project? Well, um, I have a couple of ideas. One thing I want to do is, uh, you know, and this is one of the rough things about this book is, uh, there's always people who are going to be disappointed that they're not included. And I hope people can understand that this is a book with four distinct narrative arcs. I'm writing about the CAM in the 1970s. I'm writing about the Women's Caucus for Art. I'm writing about the early years of the Lawndale Annex. And I'm writing about the Fresh Paint Exhibition. And there are, are uh, many artists here in Houston who are active at the time, some of my favorite artists, as a matter of fact, uh, that don't fit cleanly into any of those four stories. 
Uh, and uh, so, uh, of course, I'm disappointed to leave anybody out. I don't want them to feel like it's any kind of negative comment on their work. Uh, or their value to the scene, or their level of participation. Uh, and really, I see the book as being a component of a larger overall project that's going to include uh, exhibitions. It's going to include uh, extensive online content. I'm going to continue to write uh, magazine articles and for the web. Uh, so uh, I've still got a lot of ground to cover just with this subject matter. And uh, I, I would uh, let people know that uh, uh, through November 11th, I have a show up at the Glissell School of Art uh, that I curated of uh, work by uh, Houston artists uh, from this time period that I'm talking about. Uh, and uh, I drew these works from the collection of uh, one of our wonderful supportive patrons, uh, Bill Hill, who uh, very sadly passed away a couple months ago, uh, right before the show opened, in fact. Uh, but also drawing from the museum's collection, a lot of works that uh, haven't been seen in, in decades in some cases. Uh, and so I hope people will, uh, will check it out if they have the, the opportunity to do so. Uh, I'm working with Sharon Capriva on a show that uh, is going to be uh, at the Young Center in October. Uh, far down the road, I am working with uh, Ruby Searles at uh, Splendora Gardens on a show that's going to feature early works that were made or exhibited at Lawndale between 1979 and 1984. Uh, and, uh, you know, I I've got a million ideas for shows. It's just a matter of uh, finding the venues, finding the funding, uh, and finding the time to get them all done. But uh, I can just keep going and going and going with this. Mm. So it sounds like you're more interested in curating for the moment than tackling another book right at this time. Well, I have a, I do have an idea for another book that's going to be less writerly and uh, more of an archival project, uh, and I'm still kind of getting it together in my mind, but I'm, I'm beginning to, to put together some of the preliminary research for it, so there will be more books too. Well, good for you. That's awesome. I, I, one of my favorite things are the stories uh, in this book. You say it's writerly, and it's, it's a very uh, fun book to read. Well, yeah. some of these people are great storytellers. I mean, James Searles, man, I could just listen to that guy all day. Mm. <laughs> there's a great story of, um, of James. Uh, there's, this is a story I, I know from my husband, who was one of the Lawndale artists at the time, and apparently the UH... Uh, um, higher ups were unhappy with what was going on at Lawndale and a part of it was I think these, these beer sales or whatever and so one day the administrative administrative people came over unannounced and it just so happened that they had been um, sort of opening up the space James had been opening up the space to various community groups and just letting them use it and so there was a, a group of local Girl Scouts from East Houston who were looking to have a meeting and they were going to do it down the street and the people were going to charge them a hundred bucks at this church and so they were like, well, we can't pay $100. So they came down to Lawndale, and James was like, sure, you can use Lawndale. Yeah. So the administrators <laughs> from UH show up at Lawndale ready to kind of raise hell over the debauchery, and they see this group of Girl Scouts having their, having yeah. their club meeting. And, and what James apparently said uh, afterwards, after it all blew over, was, well, we dodged a bullet with that one. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's one of my favorite stories, and, and it really it really speaks to the nature of Lawndale. I mean, all kinds of things happen there, good and bad. Is that story in the book? Yeah, it is. It is. 
Was there was there not a was there not a Black Flag concert the night before in the that, space? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the place was oh, trashed. Gosh. The police came, uh, and uh, even though I was never able to f- actually find the newspaper article, uh, apparently it came out in the paper. Uh, and uh, you know these administrators read about it, or you know maybe they just got a call, but somehow they caught wind about this this Black Flag concert and the chaos that ensued, and uh, they just marched down there ready to chew them out and. Uh, they found this very cute uh, Girl Scout potluck with uh, everybody dressed, uh, these proud families dressed up in their Sunday best. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the book is such a pleasure. It's it's interesting. It's substantial. It's a real book to read. I mean, I'm sure you probably at some point had to decide whether it was going to be a smaller like book book to read or a coffee table book, and you've kind of straddled that line really well with the, all the images that are in it. Which Thank are you. important, of course. So it's 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 great. Well, I did sort of uh, envision it initially as just going to be a, a book with uh, mostly text, uh, but then you know the more I thought about it and the more I came across these incredible archival images, uh, I just realized that uh, this is something that people needed to see. And in a lot of cases, the artwork that's in the book and the archival images too, uh, many of them are completely unpublished. Uh, many uh, have uh, only previously been published in, in black and white, in uh, vintage uh, catalogs that came out in the 80s. Uh, so uh, it just seemed like this was the opportunity to do something big and expansive and uh, just as beautiful as I could make it. Well, how important was it for you to find all this all archival material? Was it hard? Uh, no, it was actually pretty easy. I did most of, most of the work at the uh, museum's archives. Uh, I did some work at the Woodson Research Center uh, over at uh, Rice University's Fondren Library. Uh, also, uh, U of H Special Collections was very significant, and they're being very active right now in uh, accessioning uh, collections of uh, papers and records from Houston artists and galleries. Uh, also, uh, uh, Lawndale Art Center uh, only just recently transferred its, its archives. Uh, to U of H, but um, uh, for for many months I just uh, uh, went in there uh, whenever I had the time to and did research right at Lawndale. Uh, also, I would say a, a really important research for images was the Houston Metropolitan Re- Research Center, uh, which has all of the original negatives from the Houston Chronicle and Houston Post uh, photographers. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, museum openings and uh, gallery shows. Uh, back in the 70s, people just weren't taking a lot of pictures, or if they did, they were of low quality or they just disappeared. Uh, but oftentimes, the newspapers would send somebody out to take a picture for the, uh, you know, Charlotte Moser's uh, article or Mimi Crossley's article. And not only do they have the image that appeared in the paper, but they have all of the outtakes too. Uh, I mean, these were just scanned right off of the original negative strips. Wow. Uh, and it's a it's a really rich resource. Uh, and uh, uh, individuals too. Uh, people were were very. Very, uh, uh, very open about uh, uh, lending me slides, lending me photographs, uh, letting me look through their stuff. I crawled around in some very disgusting attics. I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the gla- it, this is this is what we call the glamour. Of yeah, the job. yeah, yeah. Very glamorous. Well, and so, and the word, of course, or the takeaway from all that would be, uh, 
you know, if anyone listening to this, if you have to clean out, you know, an older relative's house or archives at an office or something, don't just throw everything away wholesale. There's probably stuff in there that's really important that some library or research center would really love to have. Mm. Oh, my God, that is so true. And I heard uh, over and over again from a lot of people uh, when I would ask for very specific things, oh, well, I threw that away years ago. I never thought anybody was going to care. Oh, gosh. Mm. It's the, like the worst words a historian can Yeah, hear. also, uh, we're very susceptible to floods here, and a lot of things yeah. have been uh, lost to the environment over the years. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you're going to have to get on it if you're going to do the next book. <laughs> right, right. Well, Pete, thank you so much. All right, before I wrap up, is there anything you wanted to add? Is there anything we've missed that you wanted to mention? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've, uh, I feel like I've talked a lot already, and I, I don't know when people will hear this, but uh, I'm taking this book out on the road. Uh, I have some uh, events coming up at bookstores in uh, Dallas and San Antonio uh, in mid-November. Uh, at the end of the year, on December 30th, I'm going to be reading at the Crowley Theater in Marfa, uh, wow. which I'm really excited about. And uh, I really want to get this out way beyond Houston. I would love to get up to Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, this is great that people are so excited about this book in Houston, and I am, like, very humbly grateful about that. Uh, But I want to get out there to other cities so that people across the country will realize uh, what a rich and dynamic scene we had going on here in the 70s and 80s and uh, uh, get people uh, in other places paying attention to this work and to these artists, too. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. Congratulations, too. Well, my my gosh. My pleasure. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thanks for being here.